You're listening to the New Hope Church podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in as today's talk comes from Jason Kemp. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you today, Lord. Amen. Well, I want to start just real quickly by asking the simple question. And you don't have to answer this out loud. Why are you here? Why are you here? Okay. Thank you. I said you didn't have to answer it out loud, but you're doing a great job anyway. Um, But if we ask that, what I think is one of the most powerful questions in the world, why? Anybody ever had a (laughs) five-year-old? Because I said, okay, right? We get to the point where we just don't want to go any deeper, but there's always, but why? Why are we really here? Why do we really want to praise God? Why do we really show up to do the things that we do? And, you know, on a very surface level, a few weeks ago, Randy said, hey, we're going to do Ecclesiastes. You know, that one passage is about family. Hey, Matt, what do you think? Jason, this one passage is about worship. What do you think? Okay. (laughs) So why are we here? You know, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes for the last couple of weeks that really just kind of turns out to be this seemingly depressing text, right? Everything's meaningless. It's all smoke. It's all vapor. The Hebrew word is havel, H-E-V-E-L. It's all havel. It just, it's mist. It's nothingness. And God is the only thing that can bring meaning and hope in our lives into an empty existence. God is the one that shows up and brings that. And that's really the heartbeat of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. But it gets this bad reputation of being depressing and it's this pessimistic, the glass isn't even half empty, it's less than half empty, y'all, come on. And we tend to look at that book in this manner, but yet it's part of the books of wisdom. Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, those are all the books of wisdom. So we're saying that God's wisdom is depressing? And one of the things that we're looking at is that Ecclesiastes is written in light of a broken world. Proverbs, book of wisdom, is kind of like, this is God's wisdom in the perfect world. Because I truly believe if sin had not entered into the course of human history, Eden would have turned out way different. But sin. And now Ecclesiastes, we're looking at God's wisdom going, but sin and it just doesn't work out the way it was intended. And so, yeah, everything is meaningless. The pursuits, the good things that God wanted to put in our lives, we've corrupted because of sin. That's how we got to this point. It's because of sin that now the writer is saying wisdom's futile. Even God's wisdom, it it seems futile to us because of sin. It will not fulfill. Even justice is not going to make it work for you. You can seek justice. Griffin, thank you for all you do, brother. But we can seek justice in this world for the lost and the vulnerable and the hurting and the broken. And we still don't find that full meaning and fulfillment 
Our work, our striving, our careers, our, our hobbies, our desires, our success is meaningless under the sun. Power, influence, authority, it's all meaningless. Pleasure, fun, and sex, and intimacy, all those wonderful things that God designed for our enjoyment, it's meaningless without Him. Money, prosperity, wealth, prestige, fame, influence, it's all meaningless under the sun. That Ecclesiastes is saying we can strive for those things. Yes, God created many of those things for our pleasure, our enjoyment, our edification. But if that's all we're striving for, you're never going to be satisfied. It's like this great rushing river. I mean, if you take uh, material possessions, wealth, it's like this great rushing river here in, the, in, in our culture, in Western America. We're one of the richest nations in the world. And wealth is like a rushing river that never fills the lake of our lives. It's like rowing a boat with only one oar. We're just, we're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to get where we want to go. And Satan has this great deception in our lives that he wants us to feel like we can fulfill our own desires because that's what God created us to do. You are here to, I mean, God created all these good things. He wants to fill your life with these things. Pursue them, go for it. And often we put this pursuing of our own desires in a very close second, if not very first in our lives, ahead of following God. And Ecclesiastes is saying, look, it can't even be a close second. It's not even close to doing what God can do in your life. So if nothing on this earth satisfies, with all these pursuits we could go for isn't going to get us there, then there's a couple of logical conclusions, I think. One, forget it. I'm just going to have as much fun as I can. I know it's not going to fulfill, but I'm going to do what I want. Not that I think I'm going to succeed, but I'm going to have a lot of fun in the meantime. Or we listen to the message of Ecclesiastes and we say, okay, well, maybe I need to turn to God. So I want to turn to God because I think God wants to fulfill these things in me. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be given unto you, right? So I want God. I want to be on God's side. And I think the writer of Ecclesiastes in the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I think the writer is starting to see where his audience is going and they're starting to connect this second option going, well, if all of these things in the world are not going to fulfill my life, then I'm going to take God. <laughs> that's, that's the road. That's the path to success. I'm going to go for God. And it would be easy to just run to the temple. The writer says, you know, it'd be easy just to run to God and say, here I am, all, all, I'm, all I am is yours. Take me. Go. I'm, God, I'm yours. But instead of wholeheartedly looking at the audience and saying, yes, the answer is God. Turn to him. Run to him. He instead gives a very strong and stern warning. So read with me here in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we've got to find an easier book to say. I want to preach out of John. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they are doing wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. 
God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. And when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to, pre- than to make one and not fulfill it. So do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger and say, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. So the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us three warnings. That if we're going to turn to God, if we're going to say, God, yes, you are the answer in my life. You are are what is going to bring me meaning and fulfillment. He says, be careful what you do. The first thing he says is to watch your actions. Verses one and verse one says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they are doing wrong. So God is saying that there are people that come into my presence. They don't even realize that they're sinning because they're offering a sacrifice as a fool. That we waltz into worship, we walk in and we just go, God, here I am. I am on your side. You have me. May we come in with this arrogant little, you know, chip on our shoulder going, well, now, now the God's kingdom, God's church is going to be better because, hey, I'm here. We are treading on holy ground. And so he's saying, beware of flippant attitudes. Beware of actions that turn worship into this transactional model of God, hey, I showed up, I gave you a little bit of time today or yesterday or all week or whatever, and so God, I kind of want this to happen in my life. It's not a transaction. It's not, sometimes we reduce it into this mechanical way of worship that we come in and we sing the right songs, we go through the motions, we show up, we shake hands, we smile, we hug, we do all the right things, we pray, we learn from God's word, and yet we're just going through the motions. Sometimes, and I'm pretty sure I even taught this once upon a time, church is here so that you can come in and get your spiritual fuel tank topped off, ready for the week. Anybody ever heard that one? That we're just showing up just to get what we need to make. Oh, this is going to be a hard week, so maybe I'll, yeah, maybe I'll worship a little harder today. (laughs) Worship is not for our benefit to get out of life what we want to get out of it. Because God cares about the posture that our hearts take as we enter into his presence. Maybe we've done a disservice as the church. And when I say the church, New Hope, all Church of America and Western culture in general, just maybe we've done a disservice. Maybe we've tried to bring God into this this framework of friendship or companionship that, yes, he is. We are friends, can be friends with God. He is the one who walks beside us, conversing with us day after day. But we've, we've just worked it down into that little picture and we begin to forget that God is the creator. He's the one that breathed life into us. That we sit in these seats because God chose to give you breath this morning. Again, for one more day, for one more moment that we have the opportunity to align with our creator, to tune our hearts. And 
that's what goes back to Randy's first sermon. If you've missed that one three weeks ago now, the first sermon in Ecclesiastes was talking about how we center our lives, how we align our lives with the will of God. You are only here in this room because of your sin. I am only here because of my sin. Because if, if I didn't care about my sin, I'm pretty sure I'd be sleeping in or playing golf or in line at Denny's or doing whatever pursuit of my heart that I want to do. I am a part of God's church. I am a part of new hope. I do what God has asked me to do because of my sin. And it's only because of His saving grace and mercy on the cross that I get to come into His presence. And the writer is saying, be careful. When you enter into that presence, remember from where you came. Guard your heart. Guard your actions. Do not play games with a holy God. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah says that the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. So why are you here? The second warning, after telling us to watch our actions, to guard our actions, is to hold your tongue. Verses 2 and 3 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many works. Many words mark the speech of a fool. So again, the words of being foolish before God, of being hasty, of, of coming in thinking, we've got the answers, I know what's best, I know what I need. God, I need this in life. And God might be sitting there going, you don't know nothing. Ask why you need that. If this is your goal in life, why? Because I'm trying to meet that need for you over here and you're too stuck on something you don't truly need to get what you truly would desire and bring fulfillment in your life. See, we have a tendency as, as humans to speak before we think, don't we? Anyway, how many times have you said, God gave us two ears and one mouth, right? Because we're to hold our tongue. James talks about the evil of the tongue. The Bible is full of instruction of how we should speak, how we should be careful. But if we enter thinking we know exactly what we need. We've, we, we know exactly what we want. We've got the right words. We've got the right answer. And in fact, we have already discovered truth. So God, I'm just here to you know, kind of affirm that and say, let's go. Or we proclaim our devotion to God and our closeness to God. But yet in our hearts, in our lives, we truly have not surrendered. We say we've obeyed God's words, but there's a lot of commands, a lot of instruction that we haven't. We haven't paid attention to. We kind of stick it to the side. Or we have our own language, right? We have this Christianese language you've heard about, right? If you go to another town and you're looking for a good radio station, how long does it take you to figure out where Caleb is? Not long, right? Not that it's, I'm not saying it's bad, okay? But it doesn't take long. There is a language, there is a phrasing of words that makes sense to us. And so we come in and we say these words, we say the right things, we, we say the right phrases, the right combination. But is it really in our hearts? 
I mean, Zach, I'm going to mess up your music. Sorry, buddy. Tell you what. That's the last one. I'll leave that for you. Okay. Come, let us worship our king. These are words that we said this morning. Because I could hear y'all singing. Good job. We dance in your freedom. <laughs> Anybody dancing this morning? Oh, no, figuratively. I, was da- I dance in my heart. Yeah, okay. That, one's, that was supposed to be funny. Sorry. <laughs> we, yeah, I come from a Southern Baptist background. We don't dance. All right. From the inside out. In my heart, in my soul, Lord, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out. We came with those words this morning. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. How will we walk out of this place and truly embrace justice and praise? I'm coming back to the heart of worship, right? I'll bring you more than a song. I'll bring you more than words on a screen. I'll bring you more than a melody. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours. Every single breath. Do we mean it? Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. I know there are things in my life that I struggle with. Temptations and sin that I would love to say, God, I'm done with this. I walk away, but I know that as soon as I walk out of the presence of God and I begin to live life under my own strength, I'm going to lift my soul to something else. I can't help it. We can't help it. We're made to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. We think we can say the right prayers, say the right words. We can unlock this secret formula to know God and be close to God. We've got the cliches down. We've got the shirts. I mean, Zach, I love your live, love, go shirt, buddy. But we're wearing words on our clothing. Watch your tongue. Hold your tongue. Ecclesiastes 7, a little bit later in the book, there's this line that says, do not be over-righteous and do not be over-wise. So why destroy yourself? That He's even saying we can corrupt holiness. We can corrupt righteousness. We can take all of these words. We can take all of the scripture and we can corrupt it because we begin to think we know too much. We've got it all down. We've got it all perfect. We can pursue holiness and righteousness in such a way that it mirrors pursuing wealth. That above all things, I'm going to know more about God. And we begin to lose heart. We we lose the heart of God. We lose track of who He is, His character in our lives. In the New Testament, you even hear the line cried out, well, thank God I am not like those tax collectors over there. We try and use religiosity and morality to satisfy our desires. Matthew 23, Jesus is getting on the, on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most holy, the most righteous, right? And he said, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but 
Inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. God does not listen to our words. We even sang it earlier. I forgot which line it was. God does not listen to our words. He listens to our hearts. He knows that our tongues, our, our words are full of evil because of sin. And so he looks beyond the visible. He looks beyond the audible at what is in the deepest parts of us. And that's what he listens to. When we pray, he doesn't have this little speaker going, and dear Jesus, may we please. He doesn't listen that way. He looks at our hearts. He listens to what's truly in our hearts. Our actions and our words both are tied to the condition of our heart. And Ecclesiastes is saying, be careful. Watch your actions. Hold your tongue when you come into the presence of God. And in fact, the third warning is be slow to promise. Verses 4, 5, and 6 say, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Boy, here's the theme again about our words, right? So if we promise something, God will expect us to fulfill it. And oftentimes we promise things that we will never be able to fulfill. We sin. I know I've said this. I've done something that I know is absolutely displeasing to God's presence, His Spirit. And I'm, God, I will never do that again. Never. I am done. <laughs> right? We promise things to God. Maybe it's in the face of great trouble. That we're looking for a get out of jail free card. Or it's in the face of danger, or great conviction. And we, we make these promises and we say, God, if you will just... Get me out. If you will not let my sin be known, then I will be at church every Sunday for the rest of my life. And then three months later, you're on the beach in Florida on family vacation, which is a great thing. And you go, Ooh, I just broke my vow. <laughs> right? We vow, we promise things to God that we can't keep. And we promise things to God that maybe that's not exactly what he's looking for. Because he's looking to our hearts. I mean, why do we make these vows to God? Why do, we, why do we make these promises? Sometimes I think it's because it makes us feel better. I don't like asking for help. I don't like accepting something for free. And so I want to kind of give back to the pot, right? I want to, I want to put my contri contribution back. And God is like, nope, this is not about you feeling better. This is about me forgiving your sin. And our vows tend to smooth the sting of guilt in our lives. Or we want to look good in front of others that we, we want to show like, hey, look, you know, hey, I've got it all together. In fact, <laughs> I didn't think about it. This is a brand new shirt. I just got it this week. <laughs> My wife's like, wait, how much did you pay? $7.50 at Sam's. Yes. Um, <laughs> but we do. We make these promises and say, this is, this is me. Look, I've got it figured out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, busy, I'm tired. I'm, yeah, there's some rough things in life, but God is good, man. He blesses. <laughs> I am blessed, brother. A little bit of Christianese, right? Other times, we do it to look good in front of God. We can fool one another with our words. 
We can lie. Yeah, I was running late because so the traffic on Fairview was crazy. It's, yeah. We can fool one another, but we can't fool God. But we go into his presence thinking, I've got a tongue that can make it work. I can appear better than I really am. God, I, you know, I'm sorry for those couple times, but really it was a lot of times. God cares about our vow. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, all of the, all of the Christians there that were a part of, you know, Pentecost and the disciples beginning to, you know, fill the earth with the gospel. Beautiful time in scripture. And everybody there in the community is saying, you know what? I'm going to sell everything I've got and give it to the community. Nobody needs to be rich or poor. I'm just going to give everything. And so they began doing that. The whole community began selling things. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira, who a part of that pledge went and sold their property. Ananias shows up at the temple and says, here's what I got for my land. He's questioned. He actually kept a little bit back just in case, might need that nest egg, might need that rainy day fund. He kept a little bit back. Is that all that you receive from the selling of your land? Oh, yeah. His vow cost him his life. And then three hours later, it says that Sapphira, his wife, comes in not knowing what happened. She is asked the same questions and their promise to the people, to the community, to God, to give everything costs her her life as well. That's not how God necessarily deals with each one of us ever since then. But it's an example that he cares about the vows we make. It's so much better not to make a vow rather than to hastily make a promise and not really mean it. So we get to the end of these seven verses. And the writer says, these are the warnings. When you enter into worship, when you, I don't care if it's here in this building on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. or it's in the privacy of your basement home office on Monday morning at 7 a.m. or Thursday night at 11.30 p.m. I don't care when, but when you enter into my presence, watch your actions. Hold your tongue and be slow to promise. And he says, but you're right. Turning to God is the right answer. And instead of going into this long discourse of what that looks like, what it means, he says two words, fear God. And then he moves on and starts talking about the futility of wealth. Two words, fear God. So if we are going to turn to God, then we need to fear God and obey his word. That fearing God in Ecclesiastes is the beginning of worship. Remember in Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God. The writer of Ecclesiastes closes the book with these couple of verses. He says, now that all has been heard, you've heard me talk about wealth and sex and money and and power and prestige and authority, all these things, they're all meaningless. Now that you have heard all of this, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Fear God 
Keep his commandments, obey his word. And fearing does not mean this, this despair and this cowering of like, God, I, I'm just worried. I mean, as I walked in this morning, there were about six locusts, um, or what, cicada, thank you. Southwest, we call them locusts. I think in the, Bi- the Bible calls them locusts too, right? Um, <laughs> there's about six by this door over here. And they're harmless, right? But they make horrible noises. And I remember as a kid playing under a tree and right above me. And that's not the fear we're talking about. That is not fear of the Lord. He should be our breathtaking reverence. Of awe, standing in awe before the character of God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the one that breathed life into creation. And he didn't take his hands and shape the earth. I've, I've pictured this in my mind before that, you know, between God's fingers, there's the Rocky Mountains poking up, you know, when he squeezes the clay of the earth. No, God used his words. Let there be earth. Let there be light. He just spoke it into existence. That is the power of our creator, our sustainer. He's the Lord of hosts who commands the armies. He's the great victor that at the end of days, Satan and his armies will rise up against God. And God has so much power, he just kind of has to go, Meh. And it's over. He's the great victor. He's our healer. He's our comfort. He's our peace. He is all-powerful. There is no power greater than God. He is all-knowing. There's nothing beyond the, the, know, the knowing, the presence of God. He is ever-present, everywhere, at all times. We are to fear him. It's almost like walking into the presence of a celebrity. We get tongue-tied, right? Like, oh, God, look, it's, oh, that's awesome. I can't believe he's here or whatever, right? Do we feel that times a million when we see God? He is the forgiver, full of mercy, grace, and love. We stand in fear of God, not because of pride, but because he has forgiven much. And he's going to forgive a whole lot more when it comes to my life. I know that. God has seen into the deepest, darkest parts of me. He knows and he sees me for who I am better than I know myself. And yet he still chooses to love me still chooses to give me forgiveness and grace. And so we stand in fear, longing to live under the smile of God. That we should have such an exalted view of God that we would never dare to flippantly step into His presence or pretend like He's a genie in a bottle. That we are humbled before the beauty and majesty of God and our mouths can't even open. We can't even utter the words that we want to speak because our heart is crying louder than our tongue can speak. The more we see God, the more we know him. The more we know him, the more we fear him. The more we fear him, the more we learn to worship God in spirit and in truth. So stop pursuing your desires. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. Stop pursuing your desires. Matthew 6 also says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
and stop pursuing religion like it's the next greatest thing. Like it's that next level of rich or influence or, oh, I got a million followers on my, on my feet. No, stop pursuing religion. Matthew 23, he goes on to say <laughs> what I read a minute ago. Look at there. <laughs> Where he talks to the hypocrites, to the Pharisees, and he says, stop trying to clean the outside. Work on the inside first. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't take attitudes that become false before God, that we, are, that we consider God the last option. I've tried all this stuff and none of it's worked, so I'm going to go for this last option. God, you're all I got. If I can't get it my way, God, I'll try your way and maybe you'll give it to me. He's not a status symbol for our lives. We're good at pretending. We're good at comparing ourselves to other people and putting God on this facade in our lives. He's not a vending machine where we walk up, we put in just a little bit of our time on Sunday morning, hoping that we get the favorite thing out of it that we can get through the week. He's not to be bargained with. He doesn't negotiate with us. He is God. He's not manipulated by routine or ritual. We can't say the right words, read the right scriptures, say the right prayers. He looks at our hearts. He's not a cheap entertainment show on the weekends. It's free. Well, I mean, you're supposed to tithe, right? But <laughs> He's not the, you know, I did something good this week to make myself feel better about myself. He's not a loophole. If we can't work to get what we want, then maybe God will take care of it for us. He deserves all of us. Every part of us. He loves us. He demands and deserves our full attention, our patience, our humility, our surrender. Psalm 51 says, God does not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would bring it. God doesn't take pleasure in burnt offerings. But my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a contrite heart. God, you will never despise. So I'm going to ask you the same question again. Why are you here? How do we view God? When we came into this place this morning, how did we view God? I mean, it's easy for me and Zach and Randy and Bob and staff to prepare all week for what's going to happen on Sunday because we kind of, that's kind of our role. But do we, in our hearts, prepare for what we're about to do together? That we're here to align our hearts to, with God's will, not just me, myself, but with all of you. As a community, as a family in Christ, I, I want to say we're on board together, God. We're aligned with your purposes. Do we prepare our hearts? Do we say, God, tune my heart? Have we confessed our sin? We sang words of confession this morning. We prayed words of confession this morning. Did we truly confess? Do we enter with this anxious anticipation with the honor of knowing that we're in God's presence. So God, cultivate in us a deeper sense of awe, a sense of reverence, a fear of you, a reverence of you that we want to see you for who you are. Not as we want to create in our own minds or Hastily create these images of who you are, Lord. We want to 
see you. So God, create in us a pure heart. God, renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not cast us away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, help us to watch our words, to watch our actions, and to be slow to promise that we may make sure that our hearts are in check, that our hearts know exactly what we're doing. God, let us worship you in spirit and truth. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.